In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Friends, I welcome you to this funeral. Sunday by Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some Sundays, our Eucharist comes more closely to literally following St. Paul's instruction that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Death is the great disruption. Death ends what we thought would continue. Death disorders the order we thought there was. Death disturbs the sense of normalcy we have about our existence. Death is not the way it's supposed to be, and as such, it causes dissonance, existential dissonance to our minds and our hearts. Human death, so far as the prologue to Genesis tells us, regardless of one's interpretive bent, is disruption, disorder, and disintegration of our very conception of reality. God tells the newly fallen Adam, that line so familiar from Ash Wednesday, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And in light of this, Paul tells us that by a man came death. By this man, the, the Adam came death. And again, Paul says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. As with sin, death is not the way it's supposed to be, but it is the way things are. Christian death, however, inserts another layer of dissonance. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Christian death is not the way it seems to be. But this is actually the third in three moments of our cognitive apprehension of the moments around death. And death, in fact, is actually the second moment of our experience. There is a first and foundational moment that precedes our awareness of death. Not the way it's supposed to be is parasitic on the way it's supposed to be. So first, life. Life is the first moment. We take life to be the baseline. It is life from which we start. All our lives begin in life. And all of us here presently uh, continue to embrace this gift that we have had from the very beginning, the gift of life. But second, death. Death is the second moment. Death comes to us all. As I've said, death is the great disruption of the first moment. Death disrupts life. But thirdly, for the Christian resurrection. The third moment is not the first moment. Resurrection is not a return to the first moment. Rather, it's a step beyond even life. The third moment disrupts the disruption. For in fact, I think we ought not want to go back to the first moment. Quite frankly, even in Eden, things were not perfect, good and indeed very good, but not reaching the fullness of perfection. The, uh, the inverse of the adjectives that Peter uses in our epistle reading to describe our resurrection inheritance are apt of Edenic and post-lapsarian reality. It is perishable, defilable, fatable. Our present reality is one that is marked by perishing, defilement, and fading. 
Yet Peter declares, as we heard, that the third moment, our resurrection inheritance, goes beyond what once was to show that what will be is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. We have this inheritance to come, this reward to come, but like much in theology, it's not yet, although already. That is, on on one level, on on a surface level, we experience these moments chronologically. We were all born at some point, I about 38 and a half years ago. We'll all die at some point. For most of us, we don't know the hour. And those who die in Christ will, like Christ, be resurrected at an hour known to the Father alone. Three moments experienced in chronological order. Yet on a deeper level, if I might suggest, we live out these three moments in every moment of our lives. All of us who are, who are in Christ have every moment marked by life, death, and resurrection. We are in Christ already experiencing, but through a glass dimly, all that Christ has done and brought, even as we wait for the not yet of the final consummation. An illustration. As many of you know, I, I was not raised in an Anglican environment. I spent my youth in run-of-the-mill uh, Southern California non-denominational churches. And part of my attraction to Anglicanism was the role that the church calendar played in the spirituality of those who followed it and fostered it. It seemed eminently reasonable to me that we bend our calendars to the church, for I had already so many competing calendars, uh, national, fiscal, academic, athletic. The church calendar was and is an important component of how I conceive of the seasons of my own spiritual life. I've deeply embraced the, the forced artificiality of aligning my own spirituality with the spirituality of the season. So when Lent's here, I want to only lament my sin and cower before my own wickedness. Eastertide rolls around. It's a feast day every day. During Christmastide, it's incarnation all the time. Now, as many of you also know, my mother passed away uh, two months ago from a relatively brief but intense battle with brain cancer. And I made numerous trips out to California to be with and care for her over the past six months. The first of these trips came during Holy Week. I was there the Wednesday before Good Friday through Easter Sunday afternoon. And to that point in, in mid-April, my mother's illness, and thus my experience of it, had nicely coincided with Lent. She began manifesting her symptoms in Shrovetide toward the middle of February, took a turn around Ash Wednesday, and had continued on until Holy Week. It was easy for me to meditate on my mortality and sin and sickness during Lent in this instance. And so being by her side on Good Friday, feeling the weight of her illness seemed, in some small sense, apt. And yet, come Easter Sunday morning, my mother was still sick. Lent had not ended for her. Lent had not ended for my family. As I sat on my parents' porch and heard a, a sunrise Easter service taking place in the park down the street, it didn't feel like Easter in my mind or in my soul. Rather, it felt like I was still stuck on Good Friday. But I think this speaks to a truth our commemoration of all souls speaks to as well. 
every day, indeed every moment, is charged simultaneously with the reality of life, death, and resurrection. Every day, indeed every moment, commemorates the temporary victory of death over Christ and Christ's ultimate defeat of death. Every day, indeed every moment, is simultaneously Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Cognitive dissonance, indeed, if we're always living in these three moments of life, death, and resurrection. The Christian life is marked by this dissonance. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they seem to be. And is this holy dissonance not reinforced on this day, in this service? In a few moments, we'll have a baptism for a new member of God's kingdom. Perhaps it will, and perhaps it ought, inflict a bit of cognitive dissonance on you for a baptism to take place while wearing black vestments. Well, why not? It's the same dissonance that now pushes us to use white vestments for a funeral. The faithful departed are gone from here. They're dead, and yet they're not dead. They are here. They are the faithful departed, and so have died in Christ, and yet are presently alive in Christ. This one little one who'll be baptized, too, shows forth the reality of the Christian perspective on death and resurrection. For what do we believe about baptism? Paul says in Romans 6.4 that we who are baptized are buried with Christ. Buried with Christ. We're joined with Christ for Good Friday. We die with Christ. We are buried with Christ. The waters of baptism that pour over us is the the dirt that covers our bodies when we return to the ground. And yet, verse 5 in Romans 6, Paul says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are joined with Christ for Good Friday, and we're joined with Christ for Easter Sunday. In In the brief moments as the water is poured over the child's head, she is killed with Christ. She is buried with Christ. And yet with Christ, she is raised to a new life, a resurrection life, a third moment that moves her beyond the first moment of life. But this is the Christian hope for the faithful, both for the faithful departed and for those like this little one just arriving, that we will endure to the end, living in the embrace of our present reality, is our hope. But this is not easy. Peter, too, in our reading, hits this tension that is a part of any Christian funeral and any Christian conception of death. Verse 6 from 1 Peter 1. Now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Peter writes, death is a trial, both for the one succumbing to it and for those who surround the one they love who has faced it. Grief is, it seems, a natural response to the trial of death. Yet again, Christianity teaches three moments, not two. The second moment, the moment of grief, is all that's left for those without the hope of the resurrection. And honestly, in these past few months, since my mother's passing, I've often thought how utterly impossible it would be to deal with this grief without the hope of the resurrection. Yet we are grieved by these trials, and yet, as Peter says, it is now only for a little while. I think this doesn't diminish uh, the faithful endurance that is now required as we wait for Christ to raise us on the last day. We try to live in the reality of the 
already in the resurrection, but our cognitive dissonance is strong, and at times this proves to be a great challenge. And according to some streams of our tradition, it is challenging even for those who are no longer physically with us. And so what do we do? We pray. We pray for ourselves. We pray for those who have gone before us. We pray for the little one to be baptized, that the words of Peter would be true for us, that by God's power, we would be guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are praying that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, hold on with faith to the promise inherent in Christ's words this morning when he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do the will, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ has said that he will not lose us. Those who are in Christ remain in Christ. Those who have been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism will in those same waters be raised in Christ. And we are those to whom, we are those who have been given to Christ. This child to be baptized has been given to Christ. The faithful departed, including my mother, have been given to Christ. And his promise to us is that we are firm in his grip, enduring to the last day. Our task is but to live each moment in all three moments of life, death, and resurrection. Amen.